0: It's been an interesting. It's been an interesting week. I'm going to say the, say it straightforward, and um, I'm kind of missing my partner in crime. Tammy's on her way home from Boise with the youth mission trip that they've taken down there to go down and serve and um, minister in a <clears throat> homeless shelter. That whole southern Idaho area, that, especially along the uh, the interstate corridors there, heading north and south. Um, there's a lot of homelessness, a lot of transient activity, and they went down and help down there, and they went and ministered and served at a uh, crisis pregnancy center also, and and uh, and they've had their challenges. Um, especially my wife, she actually is not feeling well, and um, and so she's kind of had a tough week, and it's been a uh, it's been a strained week here. So I kind of miss not having my uh, life partner uh, right here. She probably won't hear this till she listens to it on the internet. So I have probably a good 24 hours for some sort of a disclaimer. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Mother. Oh, boy. Still taking care of me. Uh, Hey, we had a wonderful men's breakfast yesterday morning. Um, Just a reminder out there it's the second Saturday of every month, 8 a.m. right here. and uh, great discussion. It's time for, it's, a, it's an opportunity for guys to just kind of circle up and, hey, let's talk about stuff, right? Let's talk about what's going on in life. And usually somebody has some something that, you know, a conversation piece to get something started. But a lot of times those conversations will take, you know, a twist and a turn. And, and those are good things because uh, <clears throat> as we open up and talk about the things that are going on in our lives, the things that stress us out, the things we're excited about, uh, the things that are concerning, the ups and downs. You know, conversation just kind of happens, and that's a good thing. And that's a lot the way yesterday was. And there was just some, I thought, some really good encouragement that came out of that. Um, uh, I was kind of melted down. Uh, Brock, if you don't know Brock McMillan, he's sitting right in the middle with a red sweater on. Uh, he brings his guitar, and Levi brings a box drum. and So they start us off with a little worship, and uh, it was just a great way um, to get the morning started. Um, the Lord really used those two songs that Brock brought. And I've actually been listening to both of them for the last, uh, this morning and last night a little bit. But And uh, so we're a week out from Resurrection Sunday. And today I really wanted to turn our attention to um, this kind of a new series. Um, we're going to start off in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. A little bit of an overview. Um, the book of psalms it's really a, it's a collection of hebrew songs and and as i read through it sometimes it's really hard to envision these words these this message each of these chapters kind of being put to uh putting to some sort of a lyric form uh but that's that's because of our culture not because of the culture they were written in they were very popular uh, you grew up if you grew up in in Israel, which I'm sure none of us did, but if you grew up in Israel, uh, even today, you would sing through these songs. It's the largest book of the Bible, uh, largest book of the Bible, and it follows the oldest book of the Bible uh, in your Bible. The oldest book of the Bible is the book of Job. Uh, it was, they consider, scholars consider, it was the very first book that was written, and uh, but the largest book of the Bible Psalms, is, comes just after job it 's typically right in the middle of your Bible, like uh that was always something I always did. you know as just when I was young, I was just kind of like, well where, where should I read today?" And I just flipped the thing open, and it typically came to the middle and uh somewhere in psalms and um, but it 's the largest book it 's right in the middle uh, there 's over twenty four hundred and sixty one verses. Recorded in the book of Psalms, over 40,000 lyrics, over 40,000 words. And there's different types of authors, uh, mainly King David is the, the author. We kind of think of it in an overview kind of a way. Um, but there's different authors. There's some authors, like the very first one we'll get into today. Um, Psalm 1 is not, they don't know who wrote Psalm 1, uh, but it made it into the, uh, the song book, as it were. Uh, in Israel, and so it's number one. Um, Solomon wrote some of them. There's different authors, different musicians that wrote some of these. Um, And it's different types of Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. When we think poetry, like when I was in school, and uh, this is both an announcement and a confession, I hated English. (laughs) It was like the worst class. Like I would rather go to auto shop twice or three times than go to English class, but I knew it was valuable, right? And I know that there's people in here that really value the English language, probably a lot more than me. Um, and But when we think of poetry, we think of words that rhyme. We think of a lyric, we think of, you know, we think of it in that context. And uh, so when you look over through the Psalms and even the book of Proverbs, you're not going to see words that rhyme. Rather, uh, the Hebrew poetry is... is largely wrapped around this idea it reveals either similarities or it reveals some contrasts and and you think of the book of of uh proverbs which is right after the book of psalms it brings out these ideas of contrast the wise man acts this way the foolish acts that way you know uh, the saved act this way you know the unsaved act this way somebody that's prudent you know will will do these things and somebody that's not will do these things. It's the idea of contrast is really the Hebrew uh, poetry style, if you want to call it that way. It's an interesting observation uh, in this way, is that the, book of, uh, the, the totality of Psalms really, it seems that every possible human emotion is somehow addressed or covered in the book of Psalms. And, and that's a, that's, those are good things. This is why it makes it such an awesome book to go through regardless of what's going on in your life. If you're, if you're up, if you're in full celebration mode and things are flying high and things are great, man, there's awesome verses for that in the book of Psalms. If, if you're in doubt, if you're unsure, if you're uh, troubled, if you're in pain, if you're in grief, the book of Psalms is a great book to go to because the authors, every single emotion that we would ever have as humans, is really addressed in this singular book of the Bible. Uh, and there's lots of it. There's lots of occasions in there where those things are, are covered in the book of Psalms. Uh, you could really say that the overarching theme uh, you could really say that the overarching theme of Psalms is this. It's it's that life's hard. And life's been really hard this week. It's this, it's that life's hard, but God is good. Life's really, really can be difficult sometimes. It can really be painful. It can really feel like you're drugged through the mud in life. It can really feel unfair, as it were, as we would count fairness. But here's the reality of that arching theme of the book of Psalms is that God is good. And God's got a good plan for your life. God's got a good plan for your future. And so life's hard, but God is good. Psalms is really a treasure trove of encouragement in difficult times because God's good. Psalms reveals the deep well of despair and the Lord's long rope to rescue you because God is good in that way. He rescues those people, He rescues us, He rescued me. He's got a rescue for everybody. Psalms displays that raw emotion of the battle, but it also displays in the book of Psalms, it, 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 it displays this real, raw emotion that primarily King David has, but it also reveals the rescue that the king brings, King Jesus brings, because God is good. And Psalms, the book of Psalms reveals this contrast, we talked about that a little bit, it reveals this contrast of good and evil, right and wrong, the godly versus the ungodly, because God is good. So take your Bibles or look up on the screen. There's really only there's only six verses to this first chapter. We'll turn to the first book of Psalms. Really the idea that I want to convey throughout. And I'm not sure how many weeks I'm going to be in here. It might be a series that we kind of come and go from. And and that's okay. Sometimes it's good to just do that, to to refresh our memories out of... A uh, v- variety of different books or topics in the Bible, and then come back to it at a later date. But the idea that I really want us to uh, to think about going into this is this: Be, it's a book of songs, and be it's about the raw emotions of life, the full spectrum of emotions that we would encounter. Here's what I want us to uh, take from this. So I'll say it right on the front end: Our lives should sing out. The message. As Christ followers, our lives should sing out the message of God. So, songs, being a book of songs, uh, let's sing it. Let our lives sing out the things that we read here today and in the coming weeks. Let's start right off, verse 1. Blessed is, we're just going to read all, there's only six verses. We'll read all six and we'll go back through it. Look out just a few points before we head out of here this morning. Psalms 1 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tre- <clears throat> like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Again, as I said earlier, the psalmist here, unknown, starts out with this definitive statement about a particular type of man. And he calls him this, he calls him the blessed man the blessed man I'll I'll tell you up front I don't always feel blessed a lot of times the circumstances in life that we go through will lead us to a conclusion that like I don't always feel that way and it's a reminder to me that that my position my relationship with the Lord is not based upon my feelings my feelings are a reflection, perhaps, of the situation I'm going through. They're a reflection of, of uh, the good or the bad, the things that we experience, the, the, uh, the dynamics that are circling around me. But they're not the definitive way to understand who we are in Christ. And so this idea comes into play when we look at what is, who is a blessed man? Who is a blessed man? Am I a blessed man? Are you a blessed man? And I think we can all agree this is across the board. It's not just a, like the ladies can't just like take off and, you know, go sip tea for a while. Blessed men and women is the idea. But the psalmist uses this word of a blessed man. Who's a blessed man? This idea of the blessed man translates really out of the Hebrew as the word esher, which is the idea of happiness or contentment. Esher comes from the Hebrew word ashar which in its root means this, it means this, it means to be straight or to be right. So the blessed man, the blessed woman is the the man or woman, the kid, the teenager that's right with the Lord. That's the idea of the blessed man, somebody who's in a right relationship with God. Uh, Keep that in mind as we go through because we're going to really hit on some of these dynamics The blessed man speaks of the happiness, the blessedness, or this, the contentment in the life of a man or woman who is right or straight with God. And the righteous man will be a blessed man and a happy man. When I use the word righteous, unfortunately in our culture, and unfortunately a lot of us, probably all of us, have had some sort of a negative experience with the person who thinks maybe that they're this way, but that their righteousness is really based upon their own, their own stuff, who they are. And we call that self-righteous. And it's done a lot of pain, it's done a lot of agony in the church, it's done a lot of pain and agony in our culture. The blessed man is one whose righteousness is received because of his relationship with God, not because of how good he is, not because of how good she is, not because of all the, the good things. And we should do good things as Christ followers, but those good things are a response to God's goodness, not an attempt to gain it. That's an idea that uh, we need to go forward with as we think about this. So the righteous man, the person that's right with God, will be a blessed man Will be happy Will be content. Charles Spurgeon, a famous theologian, says this, it's not blessed, blessed is the king or blessed is the scholar, blessed is the rich or if even i can insert you know blessed is the worship leader or the pastor or the you know that type of person as charles spurgeon simply says this he says blessed is the man the blessedness is attainable by the poor the forgotten the obscure as by those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame i think it's good to remember that this is a the 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 status of a blessed man is for everybody It's not for a select few. It's definitely not for me because I stand up here. I'll just say that up front. In fact, this is a sermon I would rather just be down on the floor down below. Notice the contrast coming up in the next couple of verses. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. Or sits in the seat of the scornful. Three things that identify what a blessed man avoids. He's careful not to heed ungodly advice. Careful not to be found in sinful ways. And careful not to be among the voices of the scoffers of God. And too many fail to consider whether their advice that they receive is godly or not. And there's a bit of a progression, you might say, to this pattern of the ungodly, the things that a blessed man avoids, and that is is that they walk and they stand and they sit. Why is that important? It's important because it's a progression of the influences in a person's life that leads them to continually embrace this point of view, an ungodly point of view. We can say these, speak of three things, maybe three different words we can use to identify, and that is is thinking, behaving, and belonging thinking how a man walks and with whom, behaving what a man takes a stand for and with whom, and belonging what a man is known for and with whom. And the righteous man and the ungodly man are different in how they think, how they behave, and to whom they belong. Verse 2 says this, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night two things that a blessed man embraces. He, he embraces this idea of delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating, meditating on God's Word. This word delight, if you look up some of the synonyms that go with it, joy, happiness, gladness, pleasure, fulfillment, appreciation, satisfaction, all descriptions of the word delight, all synonyms of how a blessed man sees God's law and when I talk about God's law I'm not talking about just the first five books of the Old Testament just the Ten Commandments I'm not talking about that I think that the psalmist would boil it down, I'm definitely boiling it down this way, the way that Jesus summed it up in Matthew 27 where he simply says hey, here's the law of God love him love the other people and just do good it's really that simple the activities of, a, of a, a person that's right with God, the activities of a Christ follower is simply this, just to love God and love the people around him and to do what's right, to do what's good. How do we know if that's what we're doing? How do we know if we delight in something? How can we measure or identify our delight? It's simply this, it's what you crave. That's your delight. It's what you crave. Like if I go back to the fridge and I know that the ice cream's not there, which really stinks, right? I don't like it when the ice cream's not in the fridge. And oh, uh, it should be in the freezer, shouldn't it, Emmett? I should edit the tape. When you go back to the freezer and the ice cream's not there, and I'm like, man, who ate my ice cream? I'm craving ice cream, right? It's, it's, it's what I delight in. I love ice cream. I love ice cream. Uh, that's actually a quote, not a comment. <laughs> you want to hear the story behind that? Was it last summer that we did Morgan's graduation party from college? And, of course, we had this little lockdown event. and Just a few people come, family and friends. Well, <clears throat> when we say a few people come, there was probably 30 people there but um so we had a little ceremony in the yard out and out at the farm there and uh, we had cake and ice cream and i'm sitting across the uh she's not here today but i'm sitting across the table from little nora Allwine. just this just this cute little i i have been trying to get nora to talk to me ever since she learned to talk she won't that little girl won't give me the time of day i mean she just kind of smiles and ignores me and I'm saying, what do I gotta do what do I gotta do to get through to this you know cuz she's a she's just a cutest little button and her boys are you know older brothers are rambunctious and they're going here and there and and Nora's all girl and uh, in fact they're having another girl right am I right on that I wanna get my facts straight and I think Matt deserves more than two girls actually I'll go on record to say that and uh, But here's this, just this cute, adorable little girl in a nice little dress and everything, and I can't get her to say anything to me. So i just like, all right, I'll just eat my ice cream. And all of a sudden, she looks up at me across the table, and she says, I love ice cream, <laughs> and just keeps eating. So it's a quote. It's not a comment, but I totally agree with Nora. The things that you delight in, those are those things that you crave. It's the things that you can't do without I could probably and probably should do without ice cream. But that's the things that you can't do without. That's your delight. It's what you spend the majority of your time thinking about. It's what you spend your money on. It's what you spend your time uh, considering. It's, what, it's, it's all the things that grab your attention. It's what has your focus. That's what your delight is. And the psalmist, says, the psalmist says that his delight is in what God says. His delight really boils down to just loving God, loving the people around him, and doing what's right. It's the simplest of ways to look at it. The second word there in verse 2, meditates. Uh, this word or idea needs really to make a comeback in Christianity, I believe. Uh, and it has kind of a weirdness to it. it has a weird medi- the word meditate kind of has a weirdness to it because of the way our culture hears it and perceives it and what we think about it. Like when I say the word, hey, let's just stop and meditate for a while, I'm sure on more, on more than one, and even on my own neck, probably a hair or two will go up because we're not really sure what we're talking about. Like what's he going to do? Is he going to get in a weird you know, yoga position on the stage? You know, you, I will guarantee you, one, you do not want to see that because it's not going to end well for anybody, especially me. But this word meditate really has this weird connotation in our culture shouldn't be there. It's actually a biblical word. It's one that should make a comeback in Christianity. Because when I use the word meditate, most people think of a weird, you know, Eastern religion thought. Uh, And I want to bring out a stark difference and explain in in the explanation why I think it should make a comeback. In Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, even... uh, uh, the Islamic faith, uh, the purpose of meditation really in, in broad terms is to empty yourself of thoughts, empty yourself of irritations, to empty yourself of troubles. Uh, to to it's, an att- <clears throat> it's an attempt to deal with the fact that life is hard. So the idea is to just kind of slow your mind, you know, flush all of that out. The problem is, biblically, I think that we would say that an, an empty mind, biblically, is probably not a good thing. Rather, rather than that idea, which is, when I say meditation, it's even what I think of, in Christianity, the purpose to, of meditation is this. It's to fill yourself with God's Word. That's what the psalmist says. I meditate on His law day and night, so that we gain God's perspective, so that we gain God's patience, so that we gain God's peace. And it's in preparation then for times when life is hard. That's the idea of meditation. If you think about if you think about Jesus' uh, temptations when Satan tempted him three times, what did he do prior to those temptations? He was off him and the Lord. He was off meditating on God's word. He was doing these things. He was fasting. He was denying himself, denying his own cravings. He was fasting and praying. He was meditating on God's Word. That was all in preparation then for a difficult period. Actually, some would say a difficult three years. Right? So the idea of meditating is really not to just empty our mind and to be blank and let whatever flow, whatever's going to flow, flow. It's to meditate. So fill our mind with God's Word. We're called to embrace that lifestyle just two times a day. The Word says day and night. Day and night. The psalmist goes on to give us an illustration of how a blessed of how a man is blessed. Let's look at verse 3 real quick. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. There's seven traits to the blessed man. A blessed man is this. He gives us the idea that he's like a tree. Like a tree. A tree is, and, and, and we got loggers, we got farmers uh, all around us. We've all done some sort of Uh, work with our hands in the woods we understand this uh, analogy we understand what trees are like the man being like a tree is this way he's rooted in god's word he's solid in character he's anchored to the rock of jesus he's strengthened by the winds of adversity do we understand that that's how like for a tree the reason why the roots grow out is because the wind keeps blowing the top And it forces those roots to keep digging, keep climbing, keep working their way through the crevices in the rock and keep anchoring that tree as it grows. They won't do that if there's no wind. So it's the winds of adversity is what anchors a blessed man throughout life. We should have that perspective. So we're strengthened by those winds of adversity, actually. And we're stable and unwavering in conviction, another look at a tree. The word planted there, the word planted there is this, it's an intentional act of promoting new life. It's an intentional act of promoting new life. Uh, Quite a few years ago, we planted uh, close to 300 trees out on a piece of our property out here. And uh, uh, it was in an old orchard. It was part of a, uh, program that I was through through the county uh, ASCS office and and uh, <clears throat> you know you go in you clear out a little area and you dig a hole and you plant them little pine trees in there and, and you're hoping that they grow I mean we have other pine trees on the hill it's a good place to grow pine trees so why not these you know and um, that fall that fall we had the Marble Valley fire that burned back through and uh, We lost all 300 of those little trees. But the idea of putting those trees in the ground, that idea of being a a man or a woman in the Lord that has this idea as part of their life, they are intentional about promoting life. They're intentional about about being active in other people's lives. And when I say new life, and we talk about the life of a Christ follower, we're not talking about just uh, human life the first time out of the womb. We're talking also about spiritual life. A blessed man or woman is one that is intentional about promoting, promoting new life around them. And this tree is planted by the river, where there's constant access to nourishment, water, and food. And this tree, this spiritual blessed man, brings forth fruit. The natural progression of the new life is the reproducing itself. That's bringing forth fruit, and it's in season. There's seasons of life all around us. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Uh, Sometimes it's a hard truth because sometimes I know I get really, uh, I love the summertime. Uh, I love the fall. I wish we didn't have six, seven inches of snow or if you live higher in the mountains, a foot or two every winter. I kind of like winter, but the older I get, the less I like that part. And spring, spring is a season of like, Ups and downs and disappointments. Am I wrong? Like, how many false springs have we had in the last two months? How many times has it been, like, you know, nice and warm one day, and, like, you go in, I've got to take off this jacket, and you go back out, and I'm working on a piece of equipment, and the next thing you know, we have a blizzard, and it's like, where's that jacket, you know? And so spring can kind of be disappointing sometimes. Um, I don't know why I write weird things in my notes. But we don't all live in the 1978's Beach Boys, Endless Summer kind of world. We don't. We don't. We have to experience. We experience in life, not so much talking about the weather, the place that we live in, which does have four nice, solid aspects to it. But we have to live through winter, spring, summer, and fall in life. And sometimes that's really difficult. Sometimes that's the part of life being really hard. And sometimes in, those, in, in that winter of life, where it just seems like it's just gray, 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 and you're wondering, man, like how much vitamin D do I have to take? Or how much anti-depression medication should I be on? You know, where things, frankly... Things really stink. And I don't want to be here. I don't want to experience winter in that way. I don't want this type of pain in my life. I don't want this type of, of agony in my life. Or maybe it's in the spring and it's just like kind of that same thing. It's herky jerky. And one minute it's hot and one minute it's cold. And like I'm tired of, of my life being up and down. I'm tired of one minute being like sunny hot and the next minute everything's stuck in the mud. That type of spring. The reality is is that God has purpose. God has purpose. And so when he says, in season, he brings forth fruit in season. We have to understand that God does have seasons in life. And it's hard to understand that. It's hard to understand sometimes that whatever he does isn't going to wither. Whatever a spiritual man does... The word says here, whatever he does shall prosper. The blessed man is going to make things prosper. Sometimes that's really difficult. Sometimes that comes through loss and pain and agony. Sometimes it's from losing a close friend or a relative. Sometimes it's from, from uh, the separation that seems kind of unbearable at times. But it's the reality of what God is doing. And where we have to keep our focus then is the fact that whatever he does shall prosper. We lost a young man in our community this week, in the Colville community. The family's hurting, and the family's grieving. And it's been a difficult week. It's been a difficult couple weeks. Well, week and a half. And it's hard sometimes to stay focused, but the reality is, And what I've shared with the family is this idea is that regardless of the outcome, God is good and he has a good plan. And what he does, what God does through this life, even in the loss of this life, will be a prospering event in the big scheme of God's plan for the ages. How do I know that's true? How can I I answer my own question and, and communicate that that is true? I'll tell you this way. Because we've experienced it in our own family. 16 years ago, my niece, Shea, lived six months. We don't know why God chose to allow Shea to only live here on earth six months. But that was God's plan, and it was painful. In this situation today, brings up a lot of that same emotion. It brings up a lot of those same thoughts, a lot of that same perspective. And what I know today, 16 years later, is is those that gripped onto, that held onto, that clung onto God's good plan, in spite of the pain and in spite of the agony and the loss and the unanswered questions, still can rejoice in God today. And those that couldn't, don't. And it's really sad. That's sadder to me. That's sadder to me 16 years later than the actual event. Because for Shea or for Dale from yesterday, they stepped right into eternity. No more pain. No more agony. Nothing hurts. There's nothing that doesn't work in their new body. They're having the best day of their life today. I'll guarantee it. <coughs> I'll guarantee it's true that he's having the best day of his life today. And tomorrow will be better. And the next day will be better. And the next day for Shea will be better. And whoever you've lost, whether it's Greg, he's having the best day of his life right now, Denise. That's what I know is true. And life on this side does get hard. We have to come back and circle back to what the author of of Psalms 1 is essentially saying and saying throughout the whole book that while life is hard, God has a good plan. And the better we are at understanding God's good plan, the closer we draw to Him on a regular basis, the more we put our faith and trust in Him The more that we understand that Jesus is the only one that can save us, it's not my great efforts, it's not how good I am, but it's it's that Jesus that saves us. The more that we that we lean into God in that way and put our faith and trust in Him for all that we are, we will see that good plan play out over the course of time. We will. Here's the evidence. We've calculated two dozen people, maybe not quite two dozen. Fifteen to twenty people that have come to faith in Christ because of the story of Shea. More than that, maybe closer to two dozen. You have nurses over at Children's Hospital, uh, a whole ward of of medical staff that, that, that just lives this agony day in and day in and day in and day in. And you have uh, ladies, we know many, Mom and Melanie stayed in contact with them. Ladies that grew up, they didn't believe in God. They were, they were straightforward about being an atheist. It wrecked their life. It changed their life. It upended what they believed was true about God. And they were going a completely different path now. Because they saw A little girl that that just didn't seem like she was ever going to get better, but they saw a family that kept putting their faith and trust in the Lord despite the situation. And they couldn't help but stop and say, wait a minute. Life is hard, but somehow these people are saying that God is still good. It doesn't compute. I have to start asking questions why. I have to start examining what I believe is true at my core. And I need to know why. Why do some people believe that? Why are they willing to cling on to it? And how does it seem to just like float them through the most difficult hour of their life? They started asking questions. They started getting their curiosities answered started leading them to different conclusions about who God is and how much he loves them and how much he cares for them. Whatever he does shall prosper the blessed man, those that are straight and right with the Lord. They have the marks this way. They have the marks of that biblical growth on their life. Contrasted now, so we can, draw to a conclusion here, just a few verses left. Contrast that. Contrast that type of person that you're thinking about to uh, that person that the psalmist says is a tree or a blessed man. Contrast it this way. Verse 4, The ungodly are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly are categorized this way. They're the opposite of everything that's said about the tree. Everything true about the person that's right with the Lord, stable as a tree, continual life, nourishment, fruitful, alive, prosperous, all of those things are not so regarding the ungodly. Rather, they're like chaff i got a little experience with chaff on a regular basis in my line of work. If there's one thing I don't like about farming, and there's more than one thing, but there's one thing that sticks out. If there's one thing that gets between my shirt and my back on a regular basis, it's chaff. I hate it. I cannot stand I I hate having to itch. That's just, why are you farming then? That's a great question. The Bible calls the ungodly, the people that don't know God, the people that, that disdain God, that, that hate God, he likens them, the Bible likens them to chaff. Chaff is essentially the hole that's around the kernel of a piece of grain, and it must be stripped off for that kernel to be valuable. What do I mean by that? Well, there's essentially uh, just a few things that you're going to do with grain. You're either going to consume it, um, you're, you're going to grind it, you're going to use it for feed in some sort of way, uh, or you can use it for seed. I've been cleaning, part of what I do this time of the year, part of like a minor part of my business, I sell a little cleaned grain on the side um, and uh, make a little extra spring income in that way. And so people will buy it for, and plant it for seed. And uh, the big part, there's two parts that you have to do to this thing to make it accessible or usable for seed. You have to get all the big chunks out. Some of that's chaff. And you got to get all the little stuff out. And those are like the tailings. That's the stuff that my mom takes up and feeds her chickens, which there's a lot of it, so you need more chickens. Anyway... The chaff, the chaff is removed this way. Put a little air to it. In the sifting process, this machine's kind of doing this number, and the grain kind of flows out, and and, uh, it sifts it down, and it dumps it through these little series of holes, and and the big stuff doesn't flow flow through those holes, so it goes off the front, and then it dies back under again. And underneath the whole machine is this big fan that sits there and spins and blows air It blows air so all those light particles will get blown out the back and what you're left with is the good stuff. The part that's getting blown out the back, the psalmist says, that's the ungodly. That's the ungodly. It must be stripped off. There's no weight to it. It's really not worth anything. It's literally... It's literally, when I uh, empty the bucket that collects the chaff, it kind of gets either thrown in for the chickens and they'll pick through it, or oftentimes I'll just take it out and throw it in the driveway. It's really not worth anything. So the ungodly are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly should not stand in the judgment. They should not stand in the judgment. No, they're blown around by the the bleed. the breeze. They're not going to stand in the judgment. They're not going to sit in the congregation of the righteous. There's kind of a parallel here between this verse and verse 1, a contrast rather than a uh, parallel. The ungodly are driven around by the wind. That's the idea of walking. That's what he talks about what the righteous doesn't do. And they won't stand in the judgment. Straightforward uses the same word. Or in the congregation of the righteous. They won't sit. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The righteous can have peace because of a loving God in heaven knows their way and will protect and preserve them. Or actually more succinctly, as the Hebrews has it yet more fully, Spurgeon says, the Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. He is, constant, he is constantly looking on their way. And though it may often be in midst of the darkness, yet the Lord, the Lord knows it. At least four times in the book of Acts, Christianity is called the way. Certainly it is the way of the righteous, not the way of the ungodly. As Tim comes up to lead us in communion and as we uh, gear up to close here, I want to uh, encourage us all even in a, a difficult moment. And that verse six has really kind of stood out to me this morning. In this regard, I've been praying for this young fellow, Dale Martin. When the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows exactly Not only Dale's way, as Dale was a Christian, he knew the Lord. He put his faith in the Lord. And his life ended, here on earth it ended, what we would see as really abbreviated. And it is a tragic story in that sense. But the Lord knows Dale's way. Rather, I would insert this, the Lord is knowing that's where Dale, I believe, kind of stood as much as I've gleaned from family and, and friends and things that I've read about him. That he knew the Lord's way. That there was a relationship there. And I just want to say as we close and as I turn it over to Tim for communion, and then we'll close with a song that if, if there's anyone here that is unsure about that, Let's have a conversation. Let's talk it over. Find somebody sitting around you. Find somebody that you're comfortable to talk with. Find somebody that, that uh, whether it's me, with Tim, I mean, any, any one of these people out here. That If you're not sure, make sure you're sure. Don't leave here unsure. I can't put it any more clear than that. God didn't, Jesus didn't come to, to bring a condemning word or a, 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 uh, a you know massive judgment down on people. John 3.17 says that he came not to condemn, but that through him, people are going to be saved. Through him, people are going to be saved. Through Jesus, you can be, I can be on the right side of the ledger of eternity don't let that go without notice know that you know know that you know how can you know you can know and if you're unsure come and seek somebody out here there's people that would love to talk with you that would love to share with you the people that would love to comfort you and care for you that it's not about the idea of self-righteous judgment and proclamation, you know, heralding these people this way and these people that way. I'll leave that up for God to sort out the wheat and the chaff. But he does call. He does call us throughout the pages of Scripture. He does call us to be in that first stanza of verse 6. To be on the way of righteousness. That's why Jesus came, so that we could be saved from our unrighteousness. And he does warn us to avoid the second half, the way of the ungodly. Tim, go ahead.